Hello, welcome back, HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, in this episode, I'll be taking a look at Hypnos. Um, this is a, it's not quite a Dreamland story, it's a dream story though. Um, in fact, it's quite different from a lot of the Dreamland stories, I think, in that here dreams are a source of horror, while I think in pretty much every Dreamland story we read, uh, dreams become a path to, to kind of a, a more fulfilling life, a path to hope, uh, to fulfill one's uh, well, dreams that that's um, seems redundant but to say it that way but but that's that's true it's like the way people get meaning people find meaning in the dreamlands that they can't find in this world that's certainly the case in Celephus and in the quest of iron on and polaris and and in many others so i think um outside of the fact that lovecraft wrote things about dreams and some of his nightmares became stories where he really has a narrative in which the dream is a source of, of terror. Um, now, this is a very odd story. Um, also, because we're, we're, it's, it can be read various ways. I mean, the supernatural elements are, are certainly there, but also can be read just as, as a mentally ill person and, he, and it's kind of his delusions and his ravings. Um, so, I mean, either way sort of works. But um, certainly it's someone who's fearing his dreams and, and fearing his, his nightmares. And, and uh, you know, and the story kind of builds from, from there. But I think it's really hard to argue that this narrator is reliable in any way. He's, um, there's plenty of evidence here that he's, he's a bit off quite a lot. But I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in the story, such as kind of fear of time. Uh, we got drug use here. We have... Um, people, you know, we got, maybe it's a story of insomnia, certainly one of mental illness. So I think there's a lot of fascinating things in this little, in this tiny little story. Um, so yeah, let's, let's jump into it. Um, I'm, I'm not going to spend too long on it. I think I'll just, I'll try to do this one quick because I got a big job ahead of me. I got to start working on Herbert West reanimator, which is going to, um, it's a bigger job. That'll probably be a two episode, two parter. I think uh, we're going to get to a lot of those multiple. We're going to get to a lot of multiple part episodes coming up as we start to get into the the beefier tales. Certainly, the shunned house, lurking fear, um, are kind of mid range stories, and then we get to those final ten or twelve that kind of really define Lovecraft's fame. Uh, those are all pretty much multi part. Um, uh, those, those will take multiple episodes or or, or several very long or very long episode to explore fully. So yeah, this one will, I'll just kind of give you my thoughts on this one quickly. Um, Hypnos was written in March of 1922, first published in, in the May issue 1923 of the National Amateur, still publishing in these amateur uh, magazines. So anyways, as the story opens, we're told, uh, we're given the introduction in which this man fears his sleep. And that's right away we know we're in a different kind of dream, dreamer story because our dreamers are usually much happier in their dreams than they are in, in, in the real world. Um, but again, this person's probably mentally ill. So I think that's, um, um, that might explain it. Um, he, he writes, Lovecraft writes, May the merciful gods, if indeed there be such, guard the hours when no power of the will or drug that cunning man devises can keep me from the chasm of sleep. Death is merciful, for there's no return thereof. But from 
him who has come back out of the nether chambers of nights, haggard and knowing peace rests nevermore. He kind of has this as a universal thing, a universal statement that if people really know what's going on in their dreams, they will um, not want to sleep anymore. Now, as someone who doesn't remember a lot of their dreams, I don't know, I, I kind of enjoy my dreams and, and usually I don't want to wake from them. So my experience with dreams is a little bit uh, kinder than his, but who knows in the dreams that happen at different times of nights that you don't remember, you know, it's, it's um, might be a different experience. Um, so he's kind of suggesting here that knowledge coming from sleep is a source of, of terror. Now, he introduces right away a friend that he kind of goes on this journey with. This is also kind of a questing uh, story, especially the first half is about these two friends, our narrator and his unnamed friend um, kind of exploring dreams together and, and he dies he he's he's he dies first but again i think it's really dubious whether this friend is is real or not um, so in the second paragraph of the story we get the description of the friend and this is really weird too like we never get him he doesn't have a name he just has this description his description is is very beautiful. I suppose if you're one of those people who wants to play with Lovecraft's sexuality, this is a good story to get at because there's a lot of fawning over this this um, man that he's become friends with. Uh, he writes this of him. I think he was then approaching 40 years of age for there were deep lines in his face, wan and hollow cheek, but ovals and actually beautiful and touches of grain, his thick wavering hair and a small full beard, which had once been of the deepest raven black. His bro was white as the marble of Penticulous and of height and breadth, almost godlike. Now, our narrator's a sculptor. That's his. That's his job. He's he's a, he's a, he makes busts. Um, and so he's often comparing this friend to the imagery of a of a bust. So not only does this friend not get a name, he's described as the only friend this narrator has, and he's the one. The friend is the one who, who says, let's let's begin to explore these dreams together. Um, but in their kind of desire to go and begin to explore dreams and explore the, the unwaking world, we get a little uh, shout out, I think, to the music of Eric Zahn in a way, where we hear about extra-worldly music. Um, in this sense, it's his voice. Quote, quote, afterward, I found that his voice was music, the music of deep vials and of crystalline spheres. We talked often in the night and in the day when I chiseled busts of him and carved miniature heads in ivory to immortalize his different expressions, end quote. So it's important to notice that he, d he does make busts of this person, of uh, this, this friend of his. Um, but his, his music being very similar to some of the sounds that were described in the music of Eric Zahn, such as the viol um, and the, these kind of uh, extra-worldly crystalline, uh, the, what's described here as crystalline spheres, we get flute sounds in the music of Eric Zahn from the outer world. But anyways, um, they in chapter or paragraph four, we start to see them beginning to explore uh, the universe and research the universe via their dreams. So dreams become a source of learning. This is not new. If we've read Lovecraft up to this point, we of course have his stories in which he relates his own personal dreams. And we have the dreamland stories, which often involve people finding new information through their dreams, uh, you know, a vision of a different reality, usually a reality that's substantially better for our our, our narrator. Um, now, there's a there's kind of like a little plane here with Einstein versus Freud, which I think is really 
interesting. Uh, obviously, Lovecraft's writing in a time when science was being reworked and rethought. We've said a lot about Darwin already, but Darwin by 1920s was kind of internalized. I mean, you had you had like the Scopes Monkey Trial. Darwin was being taught in schools. There was debate about whether it should be, and there were still anti-Darwinian thinkers out there, and, and we didn't know everything that explained Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection, descent, um, uh, modification via descent. But uh, by the early 20th century, you have new types of scientific thinking, which kind of disrupt the, the world and, and the way people, how people thought about the natural world, especially physics and psychology and things like that. So he writes this, men of learning suspect it, meaning dreams have meaning, and ignore it mostly. Wise men have interpreted dreams and the gods have laughed. So that seems to be Freud, I guess. Freud, of course, wrote the book, An Interpretation of Dreams. And he's saying the gods laugh at this idea that you can interpret dreams, that, that the meaning can be understood. Um, so whatever they're experiencing seems to be extra worldly in some way. Um, not really interpretable. It's not just merely your subconscious. It's, it's, there's a reality there. I think that's what he's saying there. Um, then he says, one man with oriental eyes has said that all time and space are relative and men have laughed. But even that man with oriental eyes has done no more than suspect. End quote. So this is, now, I guess it's Einstein. I never thought of Einstein as having oriental eyes and why Lovecraft needs to insist on that aspect of him. Maybe he didn't know how to describe him without name dropping Einstein. I don't know. It's kind of weird. It's kind of creepy. But nevertheless, the important point is uh, he says time and space are relative and men have laughed. Now, the gods laugh at Freud for his hubris, I suppose. But here the men laugh at Einstein for saying something that's conceived by men as preposterous. I think the narrator here is saying that Einstein is closer to the, the truth. Um, because it's only men who laugh, it's not gods. Gods don't laugh at, the, at relativity. Um, so that's kind of a cool little commentary on, on the modern science of, of the time, something Lovecraft was, was deeply interested in. Um, so anyways, uh, this is all still paragraph four. Uh, they begin to explore dreams more and more, and they start to use drugs to do this. Um, quote, then we both tried to, together, and with exotic drugs, courted terrible and forbidden dreams in the tower studio chamber of the old manor house in Hoary, Kent. So that's where they are there in England. Um, so paragraph five, we're, we're, we're told that he really can't explain what he sees. There's kind of an inexplicable nature to it. An inarticulateness is the word he uses to describe their, or their experiences and what they, what they see, what, they, you know, what happens to them in their dreams a want of symbols or suggestions in any language. And, and again, to think of the philosophy and science of the time, this was also the age where structuralists were beginning to become a, a stronger force. And of course, they're really focused in, in language and, the, and the, you know, especially post-structuralist talk about the weakness of language to, to articulate things. He's actually pre-shadowing, I think, the post-structuralists and how they question even uh, the language of being a tool of communication. Right, but he's just saying whatever's out there we can't explain. Now, I think it, when we look at it in the terms of Lovecraft's writing, it's just another way of getting at you know that music I can't really describe, that color and the color out of space I can't really describe. Just this inability to describe what's being seen because it's so extra-worldly. It's so beyond our, our sensations and our senses. 
Now, if it's impossible to describe, it doesn't stop him from trying. He tries to describe his dreams as best he can, but, but often fails. But there are a couple things we can establish from his quest into these dreams. And one is that there seems to be an agelessness um, to the world and to people when they're in dreams. It seems time is, it does, you know, he's actually shouted out relativity here. So time is not a constant there. And one thing we're going to see is as they do more of this dreaming, they wake up much older than when they go to sleep. It's like they're experiencing time in their dreams at a much larger scale than what they experience awake. Um, but generally, knowledge is something that's there. Um, and they try to write it down. The friend actually tries to write it down. This is very convenient because the friend probably isn't even a real person, isn't really there. And the fact that the friend is the one who writes it down, it's, it's as convenient as Eric Zahn writing it down in German and then the papers being lost, right? It means the description, some description was made, but Lovecraft doesn't have the burden of, of articulating it to us. You can leave it as a mystery for us. Uh, so this is, this is paragraph seven, where he writes, though I'll say with my friend once wrote on paper, a wish that he dared not utter with his tongue, which, in which he made me burn the paper and look affrightedly out of the window at the spangled night sky. I'll hint, only hint, that he had designs which involved the rulership of visible universes and more. Designs whereby the earth and the stars would move at his command and the destinies of all living things be his. So he has some sort of ambition. That, that's kind of more akin to what we see in the Dreamland stories, where a character has some kind of ambition in the Dreamlands to be a king, to find perfect beauty, or whatever. It's kind of like, it reminds me of the, of the Warren-Randolph-Carter uh, relationship. We see this so often in Lovecraft's stories that Warren being the one who's kind of more advanced, who's deeper in the cave, essentially he studied it longer, he knows a little bit more, and therefore he can kind of enter a little bit more fearlessly, or in some cases with more fear, but more curiosity, right? And he has more understanding of what he's going to witness or experience. And then Carter is the one who stays behind, who's totally blanched about what he's seen. He's studied as well, but he doesn't have that level of knowledge. It's very much like the, the other gods. In that sense, I think that relationship we see there as well. Here, it's the same. The friend is the one that's more advanced, who's more brave, who's willing to go deeper into these dreams. And our narrator is more like the Randolph Carter character, who's going to stay behind a little bit. Um, he writes, for instance, this is in paragraph nine. My friend was vastly in advance as we plunged into this awesome ocean of virgin ether. And I could see the sinister... Uh, exhalation on his floating luminous too youthful memory face and I think that's the first mention we get of a memory face being the the face of this this man in in the dreams although he uses a lot especially at the end of the story the memory face is kind of essentially all that's left so anyways jumping ahead a little bit in the story to paragraph 12 this is where they be they decide to end their investigations to stop doing this and, and begin to pursue a policy of forgetfulness. So they go from being questers to being investigators to being uh, forgetters. Uh, and basically because of something they saw, something they experienced, again, not really described very well, but it's something to do with what they experience in the dreams. They say, we really can't sleep at all anymore, right? So it's, it's like they're going to do whatever they can to stay awake. And this really, the story gets kind of fun at this point, I think, really kind of wild um, in the last half where it's all about them trying to stay awake and their descent into madness as they, as they don't lose the ability to sleep, but they force themselves to stay awake. 
Now, one reason they avoid sleeping is each time they sleep, they get older significantly. Quote, after each short and inevitable sleep, I seemed older while my friend aged with a rapidity almost shocking. It's hideous to see wrinkled forms and hear white gnomes before one's eyes. Our mode of life was now totally altered. Heretofore, a recluse, so far as I know, his true name and origin never having passed his lips, my friend now became frantic in his fear of solitude. At night, he would not be alone, nor would the company of a few persons calm him. His sole relief was obtained in revelry in the most general and boisterous sort, so that few assemblies of young and gay were unknown to us. Very short paragraph, but a lot in there. One is we got this aging from sleeping, but also we have one of their strategies for avoiding sleep, and that is basically staying out all night and partying, and it's really kind of fun. In the very next paragraph, paragraph 14, we're told that they actually become almost obnoxious because they, they're, it's, it's, if this was in the modern era, it would be like these 40-year-old dudes who just like are having a midlife crisis hanging out at college, you know, house parties or something. Um, you know, these people exist and this stuff happens, but, you know, it is kind of preposterous and ridiculous. But, you know, they even get they're ridiculed for hanging out in these kinds of, of locations. Um, but anyways, an another part of the story enters into it. Uh, basically, they're staying awake using drugs, uh, using whatever means they can to, to sleep as little as possible. Um, but the friend starts to look more and more at the sky. And this takes place over like a couple years where he's actually following a constellation across the sky. And the constellation is Corona Borealis. So this is a northern constellation. It moves around quite a lot because it's fairly high in uh, in the world, I guess because of where it is in the sky, it must move around a lot. I don't really know much about this constellation. I just looked it up. Um, it's apparently between Hercules and Bootsy. I don't know. I don't really know my constellations that well. Uh, Lovecraft certainly did, though. Um, but so they're kind of tormented by two things. One is their sleeplessness, their lack of sleep. And the other is that when they do sleep, they're aging and, and terrified. Um, and then much of the rest of the story just deals with the overall misery of their lack of sleep. And I think this is really, really well done. Like the, the clock becomes a tormenting force. They become fascinated with time. Or at least the narrator becomes fascinated by time. He becomes increasingly unhinged. Uh, and his mental illness is becoming more manifest to people who observe him. Um, you know, sounds get enhanced when, you're sleep, when you can't sleep. I don't, I don't know if, I don't really, never had insomnia in any chronic sense, just the acute ones where you can't sleep but for, for, for like a day but um, especially as the corona borealis begins to peak in the sky uh, this sleeplessness or this anxiety over the sleeplessness this madness come from all this becomes much more acute um, the, the discussion here of time is great I think it's really nice um, again as someone who's ever experienced insomnia I don't know if this is realistic or not, but I, I kind of kind of stick. I can sympathize. I can see how there's some truth to this. Um, quote, I mean, just staying up late sometimes can do this to you. I heard a clock strike somewhere, not ours, for that was not a striking clock. And my morbid fancy found in this new starting point for idle wanderings. Clocks, time, space, infinity. And then my face fancy reverted to the locales I reflected that even now beyond the roof and fog and the rain of the atmosphere, Corona Borealis was rising in the northeast. Uh, these kind of dubious connections you start making maybe when you're, you're, you're sleeping. It's connecting the time clock to the, to the rising of the Corona Borealis. Really, really uh, kind of interesting. Um, 
And then we get to the climax of the story where he writes this. It was not what I heard, but what I saw. For in that dark lock shunted in the curtain room, there appeared from the black northeast corner a shaft of horrible red-gold light, a shaft which bore with it no glow to disperse the blackness, but which streamed only upon the recumbent head of the troubled sleeper, bringing out in hideous du duplication the lumina luminous and strangely youthful memory face as I had known it in the dreams of abysmal sleep and unshackled time. When my friend had pushed behind the barrier to those secret innermost and forbidden caverns of nightmare. And then uh, a little bit later, he writes there, dwelt in the ghastly, flexible face. This is the memory face. As it shone bodiously luminous and rejuvenated in the blackness, more of stark, teeming, brain-shattering fear than all the rest of heaven and earth had ever revealed to me. That's the closest description we get to his revelation, right? Now his friend is being reduced to just a face, and he's a sculptor of busts. His friend's face was described as a bust before he made busts of his friend. Um, so the idea of kind of all of this being kind of grouped together. He's basically dreaming or, or having this fantasy about this bust he created. That's how I sort of read it. And um, he's created this friend uh, out of his statues to kind of, um, or he's dreaming of this statue. And he's having some kind of fetish for this face that he has created. Uh, and there's something about that that he experiences in his dreams that he can't wake up from. So if you want to be sort of lured about this, you could say, you know, maybe, you know, he's just having sexual dreams about this mask he, or this face, this statue he made, statuette that he produced. And, you know, living in a time when homosexuality was not really well accepted, maybe that's really the truth that he's trying to um, keep hidden. I don't know. That's probably going too far, but it's, it's a thought I had when I was reading this. Because we get so little description about what's actually going on in the dreams. So the last couple lines of the, of the story are, are, are denouement. That, that was the climax, essentially, of the story, was this unspoken revelation um, given to him via the memory face. Um, but at this point, he's kind of totally mad and everyone around him, everyone who knows anything about him. He doesn't seem to have a big circle, but enough people are witnessing him and know of him to basically call the cops on him. And so the state comes in, lodgers and police come in to, to deal with his, his madness. Um, and he can't describe really what happened to him any more than he can describe it to us very well. Um, but here's our first mention of Hypnos. He calls Hypnos the god lord of sleep against the night sky. Uh, quote, but always I shall guard against the mocking Ins insatiate hypnos, lord of sleep, against the night sky and against the mad ambition of knowledge and philosophy. So we're warned against a couple of things. One is is exploring our dreams too much. We're warned against knowledge. We're warned about kind of peeling back that veil to the other um, world. Uh, so we've seen this a lot recently. This this theme of cosmic horror in the outer other gods and in um, Eric Zahn and then again in this story, all written around the same time something he's really fine-tuning in his, in his mind. Um, of course, the, whatever he tries to say, he's doubted. He's just deemed mad by, by the others. And uh, the final paragraph, this is the 23rd paragraph in the story, um, we're told that basically all that's left of his friend, his friend has vanished, all that's left is the marble, is the marble head, and carved into the base of the marble head are the words hypnos. The final words are, 
It's all that remains of my friend, the friend who led me on to madness and wreckage, a godlike head of such marvel as only old Hellas could yield, young with the youth that is outside time, with beauted, beauteous, bearded face, curved, smiling lips, Olympian brow and dense locks, wavering and poppy-crowned. They say that the haunting memory face is molded from my own, as it was at 25, but upon the marble is carved in a single name of the letters of Attica, Hypnos. So now we got kind of another twist in it, and that is that this face seems to be his own youthful face, right? I don't know. Do they have pictures? They can just compare the pictures from his youth to the, to the you know, it's only like 15 years past. So there were photographs, you know, maybe say, so yeah, see, this is exactly you. I don't know, but he's so, what seems to happen, if you take this as a story of madness, is he carved the statue of himself, sort of fell in love with it. He kind of Hellenizes himself, right? He beautifies himself, but it's essentially him. And as he's getting older, as he's aging, as he's getting the wrinkles, the gray in his hair, right? You know, he's kind of projecting that aging process onto this imaginary friend who's really just him, you know, or maybe, you know, a, a figure he's kind of has some kind of weird sexual fantasy for. I don't know. But, you know, a lot of room to interpret this story. Um, so I think that's all I'm going to say about Hypnos. Read it and let me know what you think. I'm, I'm kind of, this is one of those stories I really don't know what to say too much about. I think it's so vague and um, it's not really, you know, he's wrote a lot of stories like this at, at this time that just have these um, uh, ambiguities. There's these Dunsey stories, these Poe type stories, which are really for the effect, for the shock, for the, for the mood. And he does that very well. He's mastered that quite well, but. You know, really, I, I want like kind of the deep scientific investigations. I want the, the details. I want the, the deep history. I want those kinds of things. And I, I like Lovecraft when he does that. The, the, that's when I like him the most. So anyways, as I said, I'm not going to spend too much time on this story. Instead, I'm going to move, focus my efforts on thinking about uh, Herbert West, West Reanimator. I'll do it over two episodes, I think. I'll look at the first three parts, the first three chapters of... Herbert West next, and then I'll do a follow-up episode where I'll look at the next two, um, or the next three chapters. It's six chapters altogether. Now, this is, I think, one of the, this is a fully Lovecraft story in that we get all the detail, we get mythology, we get uh, the long history of a person, we get the science, we get the, you know, all these other aspects are still there, but it's a much more thorough and deep story in that, in that sense. It's much more meticulous. It, it has a lot more in common with his later tales in that it does document uh, everything. It doesn't leave so much ambiguous. A few moments here and there, but it's a much more straightforward tale of, of terror. And I really like that, that story. Although, it, you know, Lovecraft thought it was a bit farcical, a bit of a, you know, he wrote it for a journal. I think it was almost like a comedy magazine called Homebrew. He wrote a couple stories for Homebrew, actually, Lurking Fear 2, um, but around the same time. I'll get to that later. Uh, so anyways, that's it for Hypnos. Let me know what you think. There's probably a lot more to be said about this. I know there's listeners out there who are maybe a little bit more into the stream stuff than, than I am. Um, but so I, th that's why I want to hear from you. I want to fill in the holes in, my, in what I'm saying about this story. So uh, that's it. Uh, send me a message if you can. Uh, if not, I'll see you next time when I'll give you my thoughts on the first half of Herbert West Reanimator.